Welcome to Proven Improbable, where we focus on metals, mining, and more. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson. Today, we will discuss a topic that affects all of us, and that is taxes. We're going to address a number of topics concerning your personal and business taxes, the tax law, tax incentives, partnering with the government, and most important, what actions you, the investor, need to take. Our guest is the world-renowned author of Tax-Free Wealth and is one of Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Advisors. Joining us today is the founder and CEO of ProVision, the world's premier strategic CPA firm, Tom Wheelwright. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Maurice. It's, uh, it's great to be on the show. You know, Tom, for first-time listeners, please share your background and tell us about ProVision and the services you offer to your clients. Yeah, happy to do it. Uh, so I uh, grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, as such, uh, of course, uh, grew up Mormon. So when I was 19, um, I was expected to go on a mission. And uh, so my, my buddies, you know, everybody wanted to go to South America. And uh, uh, because the people down there are so nice and so friendly, Latinos, you know, just terrific. And they sent me to France. And which really gave me my first opportunity to see what it was like to be an entrepreneur and get doors slammed in your face. Um, I, I was out literally a week and somebody slugged me because I'd approached them about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, selling, I'm selling Mormonism to Catholics, right? <laughs> so uh, that, it, it, it was a great opportunity. I learned a ton um, about, uh, you know, sales and, and, and approaching people and dealing with people, you know, when I was there in, uh, mostly in Paris. France. So uh, that was great. And then I, I came back, I did, I have an undergraduate degree in accounting from the University of Utah and a master's of tax from the University of Texas. And then um, the last 35 years, I've really devoted my life to studying the tax law. I was, um, including that, I was three years uh, back when Ronald Reagan was president. I was three years in the National Tax Department of Ernst & Young. Back then it was Ernst & Winnie. And uh, what I did there was I developed courses and taught courses to uh, CPAs around the country. And then I was uh, 14 years as an adjunct professor at ASU teaching graduate students about uh, how to you know, work with their clients to save taxes. And I was uh, actually four years as the in-house tax advisor of a Fortune 1000 company. And for the last 20 years, I, have, I started, founded, um, ProVision, which um, of course when I found out it was just me. And uh, since then we've grown to, we have clients in all 50 states, in uh, 30 countries, six continents around the world. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. We have about 40 people on our staff. We're a, really a full service CPA firm, but our specialty, as you'd mentioned uh, up front, is uh, strategic, um, strategic tax services. That's, that's really our, our key. We also, we also help people with their wealth strategy just because we found that people um, will come to us with a tax, say, I need to reduce my taxes. We'll ask them, well, what's your wealth strategy? Because it has such a big impact on your taxes. And they will say, well, I have no wealth strategy. I'm going, well, OK, maybe we ought to back up a little bit. Let's start with the wealth strategy first. It's not that difficult. And then we can get into the tax strategy. So we actually do those two things um, besides doing tax returns and, you know, um, representing people before the IRS and, and, you know, handling their normal CPA consulting matters. Um, that's what we do. And, you know, we love doing it. Uh, we, are, um, we are different uh, from most CPA firms. And uh, we like working with entrepreneurs. In fact, we will only work with entrepreneurs. So we look at investors, uh, people who are, you know, investing in real estate, investing in, you know, really taking an active interest in, the, in their investing. We look at them as entrepreneurs. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a brick and mortar business, but any kind of uh, really an entrepreneurship type activity. The, the, the challenge we have, uh, Maurice, is that if we have somebody come to us and they're like a high paid employee and they have no desire to invest and no desire to change that situation, there's really not much we can do because the tax law is just not in their favor. So we, we pretty much stick with the entrepreneurs, the professional investors, the, the people who are very serious about investing. And any of those people, there's just, a, a, you know, like you said, there are so many incentives in the tax law 
what, what most people don't realize is that fundamentally the tax law is just a series of incentives for business owners and investors. I mean, that's when it comes down to it, there's a, one line in the tax law that says all income's taxable unless we say it isn't. There's another line that says expenses are not deductible unless we say they are. And then there's about 28, 29 pages of charts and tables telling how much tax to pay. But that's out of 6,000 pages. And so the rest of the tax law is really a direction or a guide on how to reduce your taxes and increase your wealth. That's yeah, truly an impressive resume. And something that really resonated with me with, that you just shared was your rejection. It took a lot of courage uh, for you to, again, with a different faith, going into enemy territory, if you will. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm a strong advocate of Robert Kiyosaki. I've I've since 1999, his book Rich Dad Poor Dad changed my life. But he is a strong, strong advocate for increasing your number of rejections, and I'm glad that that uh, that philosophy has paid off for you here. Uh, oh, I, I got really good at rejection. <laughs> I, I, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick little story. So uh, I'll never forget this. I had a um, after I'd been a missionary for some time, they, you know, they have leadership roles for missionaries. And in one of my leadership roles, it was to train other uh, missionaries. And so we'd go out and I'd take other missionaries and, you know, we'd go knocking on doors. And I, I remember going through with this young missionary and we'd gone through a whole building and we'd probably knocked on literally 200 doors. And every one of them had just slammed in our face, literally. And, uh, and, and, he, and he says to me afterwards, he says, um, and we use the term elder, so Elder Wilray. He says, says Elder Wilray, he says, how do you do that and keep a smile on your face? I said, because they're not rejecting us. They're not even rejecting our message. They don't even understand our message. So, you know, once you take that viewpoint that really it's not about us, it's about them, and our job is to help them understand the message better, and once they understand the message, they'll let us in. You know, so, you know, it's it's just you know, you have to reframe what you're doing. It's like, you know, I, I, as you know, I do a lot of speaking around the world and, and a lot of it's with Robert. And, uh, you know, people always ask me that the same question, how can you get on stage in front of 10,000 people and not be scared to death? Put it nicely. So, well, it's not about me. You know, the only reason you're afraid going on stage is because you're afraid of rejection. But when it's not about you, and when you say, well, really, really, remember, this is about them, then there's, there's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to be nervous. There's the, I mean, you can be a little nervous because you want to make sure that you deliver a good message to them, but that's different than being nervous because you're afraid of them rejecting you because, it's, again, it's not about you. It's about them. You know, that's priceless wisdom that you'll never receive in the world of academia. So thank you for conveying that. That is really most appreciative. Um, you know, I have to give credit where credit is due. Tom, I've been a subscriber for about four years to your site. And although I will never, ever love taxes, <laughs> ProVision certainly has changed my perspective through education and, and introducing concepts which have been prudent and efficient in optimizing the filing of my taxes. So a personal thank you to you, sir. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Maurice. Uh, you know, glad, glad we're doing some good. You never know. <laughs> well, before we begin, Tom, as a basis for our discussion today, please share the distinction between earned, portfolio, and passive income. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, a, a lot of, uh, I presume, since you're a Rich Dad follower, a lot of your um, members are, and a lot of our listeners here are Rich Dad followers as well. And if you remember the, the second book in the series, um, which a lot of people think is the best book in the series, which is the cash flow quadrant, right? And if you look at that quadrant, you really have, um, you have, you have four quadrants, right? You have people who uh, earn their income through being an employee, people who earn their income through being self-employed, people who earn their income through a big business, and people who earn their income through uh, professional investing, okay? So if you look at those quadrants, it's really easy to distinguish between the three types of income by looking at, it's really how did you, what did you do in order to receive that income? If what you did to receive that income is you performed services of some sort, um, either for a client, for a, in a business role, you know, you, you were actively doing something. It was what you were doing that caused that income to come into the, the, the business. That's earned income, okay? And, and earned income is taxed the highest rate. 
Uh, most countries, it's taxed at 40% or more. Um, in this country, it's right around 40% if you earn a decent income as an employee. If you earn it as a self-employed individual, that actually goes up. And the reason is, is that you're now paying not only your share of the taxes, but you're paying the employer's share of the taxes. So typically, we find that in most countries, a self-employed or small business owner will typically pay about 60%. And again, this is all earned income. All right, and then you go to portfolio income, or portfolio income is income like, um, you know, you think of it as capital gains, um, dividends, um, and, and portfolio income has, typically has some, uh, a preferential tax rate. And in many countries, it's about half what your earned income tax rate is, and that's what it is in the U.S. In the U.S., it's, it's almost exactly half. So if your in, earned income tax rate is 30%, your portfolio income rate is going to be 15%. If your earned income uh, rate is 40%, your portfolio income rate is actually 20%. It actually works out that way in the U.S. And it does in a lot of countries, too. Canada has special rates for capital gains and others do. So the thing of portfolio is, portfolio is, is, is income that you earn because of time. And the only, thing, only difference here is that interest income typically is it's portfolio income, in a, uh, if I were to define it, I would define it, I would put it in the portfolio class, but it actually has a higher tax rate. So it gets taxed like it's ordinary income, even though it is technically portfolio because it's just money that, you know, that it's, it's earned because of time. But when you look at other things, uh, other money that's earned because of time, it's, it's typically capital gains. So it's earned because it's gone up in value over a period of time. That's what I think of as portfolio income. And then when you talk about passive income, passive income is income that, again, is, it's, it's actually something that is a result of, it can be a result of effort or time, but it's a, it's a business income that you have very little involvement in, okay? So you're never going to have no involvement, but let's say, you know, probably an easy rule of thumb would be if you have under 100 hours uh, of time a year, it's probably going to be passive to you. So an example is rental income is typically considered passive income, okay? If it's long-term rental. If it's short-term rental, like a hotel, it's not. That's, that's different. That's business income, so that's earned income. Um, if, if, it's, um, you know, if it's earned in a business that you just don't participate in, that's also passive income. So the, the distinctions can be a little fine, but the way I look at it is, if, I, if, if, if there was some effort involved, and it's my effort, and, and, and my effort was a significant involvement, it's probably going to be earned income or ordinary income. If it's, um, if, if it's capital gain, that's portfolio income. And then if it is um, a, some type of a business income, but I'm not actively participating in that business, then that's going to be passive income. And just for clarification in reference to the cash flow quadrant, you know, the self-employed person, that's that John Wayne rugged individual, that's your lawyer, your doctor, your dentist that has his own Johnny right. the plumber. And, right. and the B quadrant, of course, is the franchise uh, business entities. So to clarify on that distinction for our listeners that may not be aware of the cash flow quadrant, which is an absolute must read. And you mentioned uh, pa uh, the, the passive income. I'm a real estate investor and one, one key key attribute I've learned from, from Robert Kiyosaki's books and again through um, ProVision is phantom depreciation. Could you just touch on that please? Well, yeah, if you, if you look at how you can make money in um, real estate uh, as an investor, not, not flipping property or something like that, but I mean actually as a long-term buy and hold, you really actually earn it in four ways. There's four ways to get cash flow. One is the, the net rental income, right? That's cash flow from the property. One is the amortization of the debt. So your, your renter is actually paying down your debt. So that's really cash flow to you because now when you sell the property, you, that's debt you don't have to pay back. So that's cash flow to you, what I would call phantom cash flow to you. Then you have um, depreciation, which depreciation is the single biggest tax benefit anywhere in the world. By the way, this is true in every country. So depreciation is simply um, a, an allowance by the government for the wear and tear on the building and improvements, 
Okay, that's really what it is. It's an allowance for the wear and tear on the building improvements. Whether they really go down that much or not, you still get the allowance. So uh, the great thing about depreciation is you, you get all of it even though you've borrowed most of it. So take, for example, a million dollar building. You, let's say you borrowed $800,000. You get a depreciation deduction based on a million dollar purchase price, not based only on Sorry about that. Not based only on your 200000 that you put in. Not just based only on your 200000 It's based on the whole million. The bank doesn't get any depreciation. They get no tax benefit at all. Okay? So you get all of that tax benefit. So when you, when you think about uh, leveraging uh, real estate, which is, you know, as we know, that debt is really the key to making money in real estate. Okay? Debt and taxes. So what, when you leverage the real estate, not only do you increase your rate of return in the real estate, you also increase your tax deduction. So if, if you've got a, a debt to equity ratio of say four to, four to one, let's say that 80% loan to value, then what you've done is, is you've multiplied your tax benefit by five, right? Because you put in 200,000, the bank put in 800,000, you get a tax benefit on a million, which is a tax benefit on, on five times your 200000 So you get this huge tax benefit, so you're leveraging your tax benefits. And when you hear people say that they're paying taxes on their cash flow from their real estate, it's because they have not leveraged their real estate. Okay, so one of the keys actually from a tax standpoint to real estate is the leverage. So not only does it, again, not only does it increase your rate of return, but it also significantly increases your, your tax benefit. And of course, on depreciation, it can be so big that not only does it wipe out the tax on the cash flow from the property, so that's phantom income to you, but it could even offset other income that you earned in other places, like as an employee or a self-employed. Now, before I get a bunch of letters from uh, uh, listeners who say, no, it doesn't because it's passive and I'm not, you know, I, I don't have passive income from these others, I would say you maybe ought to talk to a different tax advisor because my experience is that there's almost always a way, almost, not 100%, but there's almost always a way to take advantage of those real estate losses that come as a result of depreciation, even if you're not a real estate professional. Even if you're not a real estate professional, it just takes a little more creative thinking. It's all legit. It's all legal. Okay, we don't want to do anything that's not legal. Just be really clear. There's, um, you know, cheating on a tax return is a really bad idea. All right, the last thing you want to do is go to jail for being a tax cheat. I mean, you know, if you're going to go to a jail, do it because you robbed a bank. I mean, really, you know, made a lot of money. You know, don't, don't go to jail because, you know, you, you fudged on your taxes. That's a bad idea. Well, Tom, so, I, I know you're a person of integrity and so is provision, so that won't even be a concern here. <laughs> good. Okay. Now, I just want, you know, it's interesting, though, because, you, you know, you, you, I, I've talked to a number of entrepreneurs. In fact, I, I talked to a group of entrepreneurs um, uh, just over a year ago. And the, this group of entrepreneurs, um, it was in their mindset that they had to cheat in order to reduce their taxes. And, and that is the mindset of the E and the S side of the cash flow quadrant. The B and the I side, the big business and the investor side, their, their mindset is very different. Okay, their mindset is, look, I want good financial statements. I want to have a good team. I want to have profession, you know, professional advisors. And so they have a very different mindset than the E and the S. And the reality is there's a lot you can do from a, reducing your taxes on the B and the I side of the cash flow quadrant that you can't do on the E and the S. Now, you don't have to be big in order to do them. You just have to behave like the B and the I side. So it, you could be a small business owner. You could be an S, okay, and earn your income as a small business owner. But as long as you behave legally like a B, you still get the tax benefits of the B, even though you only have three employees. So that, that's the great thing about um, when you look at the cash flow quadrants. You don't have to be big. You don't have to be a real estate investor um, that owns, you know, 10,000 units or, or, or 10,000 doors. 
you can be a real estate investor that owns a fourplex and still get proportionately the same tax benefits as if you earned as if you had 10,000 doors. So that's the great thing about tax law. The tax law, and th this is really important for everybody to recognize, the tax law is absolutely fair in that anybody in a, a particular situation, two people in the exact same situation will, will get tax benefits of exactly the same amount. Okay, so you know, when you hear, for example, we heard um, during the campaign, right, we heard one candidate that was a, an attorney that, um, you know, dad was a small business owner, and she's going, it, she's accusing the other candidate of not paying any taxes, and what was his response? His response was, well, it's because I'm smart. I'm going, well, okay, you can look at it that way, or you could just say, you, She's in an S quadrant, and he's in the B and the I quadrant. Of, co of course he pays less tax than you do, because that's how the tax law is set up. It's set up for him to pay less tax. He uses debt. He buys a lot of real estate. The reality is President Trump, like him or not, okay, and I don't like a lot of things he says, but I got to tell you, he'd have to have the dumbest tax advisor in the world to be paying any taxes, okay, because of all the real estate and the debt that he has. So, you know, it's, it's not a comparison. She's going, well, it's not fair. Well, but, you know, you help pass the laws. So, you know, what's, you know, what's fair to one person is not fair to another person, right? But what's really fair is when, if you're in the same fact pattern as somebody else, you get the same result. And that's the case with taxes. So I just want to be really clear on that. So we have depreciation, but there, there, there's a fourth, and the fourth is appreciation. So, of course, one of the goals in real estate you know, while the primary goal, at least in my mind, and, uh, you know, if, if you have a different view, that, that's fine, Maurice. At least in my mind, the primary view, uh, the, the primary goal in real estate is cash flow. And it's current cash flow. It's not capital gains. The reality is, is that there's a lot you can do in real estate to improve the cash flow from the real estate. And when you improve the cash flow of the real estate, because of the way it's valued on what we call cap rates, when you improve the, the, the cash flow from real estate, it automatically improves the value of the real estate. Now, there are other things that can affect the value, too, obviously, like, um, you, you know, interest rates and so forth. But appreciation certainly is something that, while it may not be the primary, you know, reason you invest in real estate, I think, w personally, when I look at a piece of real estate, I'm always looking for how can I improve this real estate so that I can increase the value so that I can take my money out via refinance, I can take my money out as soon as possible, take that money off the table. And let me pause right there, for, if I may, Tom. So for our audience, just to clarify here, you have an opportunity to invest in real estate. Now, you can purchase this property, this investment property, and you can flip it. And that is the capital gains that we're referring to. That's actually, that's actually no, that's actually earned income. Yes. So that's actually, that's not even capital gains. That is not portfolio income. That is going to be taxed at your highest rates because it's really, if you're flipping properties, you're not in the I quadrant. You're in the S quadrant. So just, 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 I just want to make sure everybody's clear on that. Flipping properties is a business. And, and for most people, flipping properties is a business in the S quadrant and they're going to be taxed that way. And thank you for correcting me. And what we're trying to share with our audience is one of the things that I do and Tom, I know you do as well is we are landlords and we want our properties to appreciate by also taking advantage of the phantom depreciation. But the difference is, is we have a tenant and we're in essence using arbitrage. We have a tenant that is paying off right. our debt obligations. So it's a win-win proposition, but there's two, ways, there's two ways to approach real estate investing. And for anyone who's not aware of it, again, Tom Wheelwright and ProVision can certainly lead you in the right direction regarding this conversation. Now, Tom, we've covered earned portfolio and passive. Clarify for us the difference between a tax credit and a tax deduction. Oh, thanks for asking that. I actually don't get that question very often. And I think it's a really important distinction um, because um, <laughs> tax credits, while all tax, while I think the tax laws are always fair, um, tax credits are exactly fair no matter what your tax bracket is. So in other words, a tax credit is a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction of your actual income tax. So if you have a $1,000 tax credit, and let's say you have two people, and let's say one person, their, their total tax bill is $5,000, and another ta person, their total tax bill is 500000 
Okay, so somebody's in the 15% tax bracket and the other's in the 40% tax bracket. A $1,000 credit is worth exactly the same to both of them. It's worth $1,000. On the other hand, a deduction is simply a reduction of taxable income. So in that same case, a $1,000 deduction for the person in the 15% bracket is worth $1,000 times 15% or $150. Whereas $1,000 in the 40% bracket is worth $400. Both of which, of course, is worth way less than a $1,000 credit. So a deduction is, is, is a reduction of your taxable income, not a reduction of your tax, whereas a credit is a reduction of your tax. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. There's so much ambiguity regarding that. <laughs> totally. Okay, Tom. So the 15th of April is fast approaching. I need to complete my taxes. What are some of the most commonly overlooked deductions by your do-it-yourselfers and even CPAs that could significantly determine whether I owe the IRS or if the IRS owes me? Uh, you, you know, I, I'll give you five real quick, okay? Number one probably is home office. Um, this is the one that uh, tax preparers frequently tell their, um, their clients, don't take this, it raises a red flag. The reality is, if you've set up your business right, the IRS doesn't even know you're taking a home office deduction. In fact, there is absolutely nowhere on your tax return where it should show that you have a home office deduction if you set your situation up properly, okay? If you set it up like the B and the I quadrant as opposed to the E and the S quadrant. Okay, so home office is number one. And not only because you get the home office deduction, but because the home office deduction actually gets you a bigger deduction in number two, which is your automobile expense. Um, I think most people recognize that their commuting is considered by the IRS to be a personal expense. So the first trip they take during the day, even if, let's say you're a professional real estate investor, and so all you do is go see properties all day long. Well, that very first trip to that first property is a commute. And the very last one from the last property home is a commute. So that's not deductible. Unless, of course, you have a home office. If you have home office, then your commute's 30 feet. So you go to your home office before you go out for the day. That's your commute. Then your very first trip to a property, now that's not a commute anymore. You've already commuted to your office. And then the last one home, of course, what are you going to do when you get home? You're going to get to your home office again. You're going to do a little paperwork, you know, um, do some emails. Talk, you know, talk to, to uh, customers or clients or whatever, and then you're going to be done for the day. So your commute, again, when you get home is 30 feet. So the automobile expense deduction is one that people normally vastly understate only because they haven't taken full advantage of the home office deduction. So deductions are frequently connected to each other, and, and most, frankly, most tax preparers don't understand the law well enough to know that. So those are two. I would say another one would be meals and entertainment. Um, uh, you know, in order for an expense to be deductible, all that's required is that the expense have a business purpose. It has to be ordinary, which means it's typical for that business. And it has to be necessary, meaning that the purpose of the expenditure is to either increase your business or increase your bottom line. Right, either, either increase your market share or your bottom line. That's that's what necessary means. So any expense you've got could be deductible, given the right facts and circumstances. Well, meals and entertainment is one that people miss all the time, because let's take an example that you let's say you you and your spouse go out to dinner. Now I have yet to meet a serious investor or an entrepreneur who could refrain from talking about business while they're at dinner with their spouse, <laughs> even if their spouse is not involved in the business because they want to they want to bounce ideas off somebody and who do they have that's not a subordinate or a competitor well who they have is their spouse so is there a business purpose for that well yeah okay the business purpose is I want to bounce a business idea off my spouse is it ordinary is it would it be typical to to in in any business frankly to want to bounce ideas off at least once a week you know, maybe even twice a week, do I want to bounce it off somebody? And what, would it make sense? Is it necessary that it actually be dinner? And the reality is probably because that's when we have, uh, it's a different environment, it's more relaxed, and that's when we, we tend to be able to open up a little bit, okay, have a glass of wine, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very comfortable environment for having that discussion. So I think meals entertainment is something that, that people miss. Now, 
remember on all of your deductions that it is not deductible unless it's documented. So you do want to sit down with your tax preparer, make sure that you get the, dedu the, the documentation proper, the, the proper documentation, because the IRS is very clear and the courts are very clear that if you have not documented it properly, you do not get to deduct it. It doesn't matter. You could spend $100,000 on absolutely legitimate business expenses. If you don't have them documented, they are not deductible. That is really clear. Um, you know, a couple of others that I think people miss, one is travel. I think there's a lot of times that people um, spend time uh, on business when they travel or could spend time on business when they travel and they don't. The, the rule, just so everybody knows, the rule for travel is if, I, if you spend, um, if the primary purpose, this is actually the true answer, if the primary purpose of the travel is business, it's deductible. Well, what does that mean, primary purpose? Primary purpose has been kind of interpreted by the IRS and the courts to mean more than 50% of your workday is spent on business. So more spent on business than on, uh, than on pleasure, so therefore it's deductible. So that means that if you're in, like you are, you're a professional real estate investor, you go someplace um, and you spend, you know, five hours a day uh, looking at properties and you and, and, and the rest of the day you spend you know at the beach or whatever that's as long as you properly document it again that should be a business deduction and it could be for your spouse if your spouse is also involved in the business and and it and it's actually there's a business reason for your spouse being there so travels another one and the last one's probably education um, the IRS by the way hates seminars they think as a general rule they're not deductible but the reality is, as long as they're a continuing education for a business you already have in place, they are deductible. So this is one place where when you're looking at your tax return and your tax preparer, what most people don't understand is how you prepare a tax return is, is as important as what, as what goes into the tax return. So what you do during the year, that's half the battle, but the other half the battle is how you put it on the tax return. So for example, if you go to a seminar, let's say you go to a real estate seminar, and you put down on your tax return real estate seminar, I will tell you two things. One is, that is a red flag, and two is, that will the IRS will say that's not deductible. On the other hand, if you put down continuing professional education for that seminar, which is what it is if you're in the real estate business, the I, A, it's not a red flag, and B, if the IRS does look at it, they should be allowing it. So you know, there's, there's just a lot of things like that, and, and that's one of them. So seminars are something that as long as it really is continuing, continuing education for a field you're already in, and it's not a new field, it should be deductible. So what I'm hearing here is the same endeavor, just a different nomenclature. <laughs> exactly. No, in, in that case, it's, that's exactly what it is. You're doing the exact same thing you were doing before, but you're calling it, you're, the way you're showing it on your tax return is different. I can tell you, I mean, there are a number of things that we do when we look at a tax return. My job when I look at a tax return, I don't look at any of the detail from the standpoint that it's not my job. I have preparers and reviewers to do this. It's not my job to look at the actual numbers per se. What my job is is to look at the tax return and say, are there opportunities here because of how we've reported something? And it's amazing. I mean, I can literally give you ex uh, hundreds of examples where we've saved thousands and thousands of dollars in taxes because we've legitimately changed how uh, uh, an expenditure or, a, or a, an item of income was reported and where it was reported. Um, you know, the, the USA Today used to do a, an interesting um, uh, little test every year, and they take 10 tax preparers and put them in a room, gave them all the same facts. And how many different tax returns do you think they came up with? <laughs> I'm laughing yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, you know it was 10, yes. right? <laughs> exactly. So, so, and, and, so and beauty's, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, correct? Well, and not only that, but all 10 could be absolutely correct. That's the thing that people don't, I, I think people don't recognize. They go, oh, you mean you had 10 idiots, I mean nine idiots and one smart person? No. You could have 10 people that absolutely are reporting the same facts and circumstances on a tax return, and they are all equally accurate, and, and one gives you a much better tax result than another. Absolutely. And, you know, I noticed, Tom, here, the recurring theme here is 
every transaction has a tax implication. Every one. I mean, every dollar you bring in is either taxable or not, and it's taxable at one rate or another, right? So you can bring in many. So, I mean, take somebody, you know, I'll give you another example. Let's take two people. You know, you have a, um, you have a professional investor and you have an amateur investor, okay? And they both invest in real estate. The tax consequences are different because one doesn't spend very much time at it, one spends a lot of time at it. The tax consequences are different. So you can, uh, you know, you can have the same dollar of income, but it can be taxed very differently, depending on how you set things up. So that's why, you know, the very first thing we do with any new client is we do go through what we call a tax strategy, which involves what, you know, how are you owning your assets? How, what, you know, what kind of contracts do you have between your companies? How are you paying yourself? Um, who's involved in your business? How do you involve your children? How do you involve your parents? Okay, I mean, we're, when we look at, at, at a person's tax situation, um, if somebody asks me a tax question, I, I, I kind of laugh because I get this all the time, right? I'll be at a seminar or something, somebody will ask me, you know, is this deductible? I'm going, well, I'm going, I don't know. Because I don't, I don't know your facts and circumstances. I said, but can I suggest a better question? And you know, they'll always say, of course. Well, the better question is, how do I make it deductible? So, you know, you, you, the, the key, I think, for example, the key to your prepare your tax advisor, which should be the same person, but the key to your tax advisor is not what answers they give you. The key to the ta a tax advisor is what questions do they ask? It's like when you go to a doctor, okay, if, if, if the doctor's a good doctor, what are they doing? They're spending, in, in a 15-minute consultation, they're spending... 14 minutes asking you questions to diagnose what's going on, and then in one minute, they can give you the prescription. Well, what happens with, with most people is um, they go to a tax advisor, and the tax advisor spends 14 minutes telling them what the answer is, okay, and one minute asking questions. It's backwards. So it's, it's really key that, uh, you know, I think it's key for all of us to learn how to ask good questions, but it's also key to have team members that ask good questions. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. My first CPA, uh, again, I'm a student of Robert Kiyosaki. He shared all CPAs are not created equal. And I thought I did my due diligence. The CPA, uh, I asked a, a general question, which was, are, do you, are any of your clients real estate investors? Yes. So I said, oh, okay, this guy knows exactly what I'm trying to do here. Wrong. His clientele target market was basically uh, employees. So right. the, the, there was a a philosophy and paradigm shift that uh, he was not able to make based on my needs and my circumstances and it wasn't favorable so we had to make a, a, a transition and it worked out for the better but you're absolutely correct it was my inability to articulate my thoughts and I asked a vague question and I got a vague right. response so thank you <laughs> yeah I mean right because you I, he, I'm sure he was truthful he probably did have one or two um, <laughs> clients that had real estate investments and so he said yeah some of them are okay of course he's gonna give you that answer you know what you know like a better question if you want, really want to know the answer to that you might ask what proportion of your clients are real estate investors or uh, describe your typical client Okay, because here's the other thing is that when it comes to entrepreneurs and investors, there are certain things that really are specialties. Real estate's one of them. Um, oil and gas would be another one. Agriculture would be another one. Um, so there are some specialties. But when it comes to business, there are no specialties. So if, 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 if you know, one person says, well, I own a pharmacy, and another person says, well, I have an internet business, and a third person says, um, you know, I, I, I'm a doctor, you're all business owners as far as I'm concerned. And most of your deductions are gonna be the same, most of your situation is the same. In fact, 95% of your situation is identical, okay? So, you know, the, there's, there's different categories of, uh, of clients, frankly. And so there are, some, there are some things that are real specialized and there's some things that are not quite so specialized. So real estate would be one of those. It's, it's a, and in fact, you can even go a step further you know, okay, so when you're talking about real estate, um, you've got 
real estate investors, what type of real estate investors? Well, I, I deal with you know people that have duplexes and fourplexes, or I have clients that have you know 200 unit apartment complexes, or I have clients who are real estate developers. I have clients who are land developers. These are actually all different specialties inside my profession. So um, they're they're very different from each other, and it's actually a very complex area of law. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that and don't understand that, particularly when it comes to real estate, it is a very complex um, part of the law. And it's very helpful to have somebody um, who is a, really is a specialist in that area. And provision is that. <laughs> we, we we are. I, I would I would I would. Um, you don't have to toot your own horn, but I, I, no, no. I <laughs> I would conservatively say eighty percent of our of our clients are are real estate investors. Um, they're not all because some of them are business owners and the, and they haven't invested in real estate. They invest in other things, oil and gas, etc. Um, but it, it it that's actually where my partner. You know, my uh, my my partner, my partner, and I came from as we actually came out of real estate from the big big four accounting firms. I was um, actually headed up the real estate uh, tax group at Ernst and Ernst and Young when I was uh, in the Phoenix office, and uh, my partner was involved in the KPMG um, real estate practice um, when when she was at KPMG. So, you know, we we actually do. It, it actually happens to be our specific specialty. Um, we have a couple of other specialties. For example, we do a lot of internet businesses, so we tend to uh, uh, deal with a lot of people in the internet, a lot of people with um, multi-level marketing. We end up dealing with with a lot of people there too, really because of Robert. And uh, so there are, there are a few other things that we do. We actually have a, a subspecialty in pharmacy owners, of all things. So um, not that I think I actually think that one's not very important. That that's a specialty. Um, because it's not that complicated. I mean, it's it's very similar to other businesses. But it, but I think your point is is that um, there are some times where um, a specialty is it really is required. Um, I, I would give you another one that I'm not a specialist in um, personally is international. If you do international investing, um, you really do need a firm that does a lot has a lot of clients in international investing. Now we happen to, but it's not me. So I would never presume to know much of anything about international, I would defer to my partner who's an expert in that area. Or you might have somebody else, you, you, you know, if you have a lot of um, uh, deferred compensation, for example, particularly uh, a pension plan. I'm not an expert in the pension plan area. In fact, we're not as a firm an expert in the pension plan area. We would actually refer you to somebody who was if you had a particular issue in that area. All right. Now, Tom, let me, let's, let's talk about a subject that, or I should say a concept that I want to give you full credit for, and that is partnering with the government to receive tax incentives. It's a unique concept. Can you share with our audience? Yeah, of course, and thanks for asking the question because that, that kind of is the whole premise of what we do, is that if you look at the tax law closely, what you'll see is that every tax incentive is there for a specific purpose. In other words, the government wants you to do something. And so what the government realized many, many years ago, and really the, the big tax incentives started in the 1960s, okay? It really started with the investment tax credit, research and development credit. There were a couple of these, the, these tax credits that the government kind of played around with and determined that, wow, people really hate paying taxes. So if we give them a little bit of an incentive, they will put their money there, or they'll put their effort there, they'll put their time there. Okay, so what what we want to do when if we want to reduce our taxes, we want to partner with the government. And let me give you a simple example. Let's say that you, the government in the U.S. wants us to drill for oil and gas in the U.S. Big tax incentives. Okay, if you invest a hundred thousand dollars in um, an oil and gas well, the very first year you're going to get a tax benefit roughly equal to $32,000 if you're in a 40% tax bracket, 80% times 40%. So you're going to get this huge $32,000 tax benefit. Okay, well, what's going on here? Well, what's really happening is you're putting $68,000 at risk. The government's putting the other $32,000 at risk. The government's willing to do that because they realize that investing in oil and gas is a risky, you know, is a risky investment, and they're willing to contribute to that risk because they want to encourage that type of investment. The reality is, if that were not the case, we would have no 
um, small producers of oil and gas. I mean, we would have zero. We'd have the big companies, and that would be it. And, and um, Tom, let me interject here just for one second. You're yeah. not referring to Exxon and Shell and BP. You're referring to oil fields, correct? Correct. So you have to, if you invest in oil stock, you don't get the same tax benefit as if you direct um, directly in the well. If you invest directly in the well, you get this benefit. My point is, is that that's what the government wants you to do. They don't want you, to, they're not going to give you this big incentive to invest in, in Exxon. But they will give you incentive if you put the money into the ground. Okay? Well, that's just the government saying, we'll partner with you. We'll help you out. We'll contribute. Now, what happens when the oil well does really well, okay, it produces all this income. Well, then the government says, we're going to take our 32% share of it. In fact, they're going to take 40%. Well, actually, they take about 32% back, okay? We're going to take our share of it, okay? We're going to uh, give you a little benefit called depletion, but the rest of it, we're going to tax, and we're going to take our 32% share of the income. So, and the uh, up front, they're making 32% of the investment, and on the back end, they're taking 32% of the income. So it literally is a partnership with the government. Uh, I, I'll give you an, uh, another good example. The government wants us to send our kids to college. So what do they do? They give us credits, tax credits, for education credits, right, for sending our kids to college. They're just partnering with us. They're saying, look, if you'll put up money... You know, if you'll put your kid through college, we'll contribute to that because what, we, what we're hoping for is that when they graduate from college, they'll get a high-paying job, and as a result of that high-paying job, they're going to pay us more taxes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Or, or take let me, one, one other very simple example. You talked about the B quadrant. The B quadrant has great tax benefits. Why? Because the B quadrant is where you employ 500 people or more. Well, what are those 500 people doing? They're paying taxes of 40%. So, of course, the government says, look, we'll give you a tax benefit. We'll only tax you at 20%. In exchange, you're going to create all of these, you're going to create all these jobs, and these people are going to pay the tax back at 40%. So it's a great deal for the government. Now, Tom, let me ask you this. In reference to those oil fields, a lot of our listeners here, we love natural resource investing, of course, and okay. we love oil and gas. Do you have a list of companies that you share with your clients regarding the oil fields? We do actually. Okay. Yeah, we, ha we we do have a list. Uh, uh, these are just uh, these are um, companies that our clients have used. You know, we have not. You know, you always have to do your due diligence. I mean, you know that. Right. You know, whether it's real estate, oil and gas, any other investment, you you really have to do due diligence. I think you have to do even more due diligence in oil and gas than anything else. And the reason is because you can't see the asset, right? So what happens is, is that we, my experience, and I've been an oil and gas investor for uh, over 30 years. And I like oil and gas. I mean, I went to school in Texas, for heaven's sake. So I better <laughs> like oil and gas. So I started my career in Utah during the gas boom days of the, of the 80s. So... You know, what, what happens, unfortunately, is in the oil and gas industry, because the oil and gas is hidden, and, you know, they, they give you all these disclaimers we not, may not hit. It's really easy for an oil and gas developer to say we hit a dry hole when what they did was they ran off with the money. So you, you have to do due diligence in a number of ways, particularly when it comes to oil and gas. You have to look at the driller. Do they, A, know what they're doing, but also are they honest? Yes. Right? Yes. So the people on our list... All we know is that we have clients who invested with them that have not that, that that the complaints have not been so loud that we've taken them off the list. <laughs> okay, but you really you really have to do a lot of due diligence. I think a lot of the oil and gas people they take, I think they take a very high percentage of the income, and I don't think they give their investors enough. Frankly, I mean that's just my my um, honest comment about that. I think that's true with real estate as well. There are some. Um, real estate developers who really um, take what I consider to be a fair share and others who take just way more than a fair share. So you always have to look at three things. You have to look at the partner. You have to look at the deal, okay? And the deal, that is, what is your deal with the partner? And then you also have to look at the actual investment itself. So, you know, you, you have to do due do, do, do diligence on all three of those. And only the only due diligence we've done on our list is we don't have anybody that said these guys ran off with my money. But other than that, we haven't done due diligence on the deal 
or the actual um, project. Well, our subscribers, they use critical analysis and independent thinking, and they, lo they love the natural resource space. But the most important thing I love about our subscribers is they take responsibility for their own actions, and so they realize there's no guarantee in anything, and if something doesn't turn out favorable, the, the responsibility falls on their shoulders, and that's uh, we're proud to have that. Nice to hear. All right. Tom, as we come to the end of today's discussion, last question. What did I forget to ask? Well, so, so I, I'll, I'll tell you that um, the number one question I get, okay, and the number one fear people have, and that is, how do I avoid an IRS audit? And uh, so I'm going to give everybody, uh, everybody should write this down. I'm going to tell you how you are never going to have to be afraid of an IRS audit, ever, 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 if you do this. And all you have to do is, you just write down these words, I will never speak to the IRS. Just write down those words. I will never speak to the IRS. When people get in trouble with the IRS, it's because they talk to the IRS. Don't talk to them. That's what we're for. That's why you have professional tax advisors. We're, we know, you know, if, if you go up, it's kind of like, let's say that you were, um, had a one-on-one -on -one, uh, basketball tournament, right? And you went up against a good um, college player. The college players always, nine times out of ten, they're going to beat you. They're going to win, okay? But if you say, look, okay, I'm going to bring in um, LeBron James or I'm going to bring in um, Steph Curry and, and they're going to kind of be my surrogate and they're going to play against you, okay? Well, that's exactly what can happen in an IRS audit. You're allowed to bring in a surrogate that knows more about the tax law than you do, but also knows more about the tax law than the IRS does. I mean, you got to consider. I mean, you know, IRS agents, bless their hearts, they're in a terrible position. Can you imagine a job, <laughs> Maurice? Can you imagine a worse job? This is a job where you go to work every day and your clients detest the sight of you. They don't ever want to talk to you. They want nothing to do with you. And when you say, I'm here to help you, they just start laughing at you, right? That's what it's like to be an IRS agent. I mean, I really, I pity IRS agents. And so what happens? So you, the best and the bright, brightest are not going to become IRS agents, okay? These, the people who become IRS agents uh, out of school are the people who can't get a job in one of the big accounting firms. They can't get a big job in a local firm. They can't get a job in industry. So they've really exhausted where they can get a job, and so they get a job at the IRS. So, but... The challenge is, is that they have a lot of power, okay? And they, because remember the, the first thing I said, the rule is all income's taxable, no expenses are deductible unless you prove otherwise, okay? So, so the burden of proof is on you because those are the general rules. So what that means is, is that when you have a tax preparer, your tax return should be pre prepared in such a way that it's ready for an audit the day it's, the, the, the day it's filed. The, it's, you don't have to wait to prepare for the audit two years later when you actually get the audit. It's too late, by the way. By then, it's too late. You can't prepare for an audit when, after you get the notice that you're being audited. You must prepare for the audit as you prepare the tax return. Okay, And that's why, like in, in, in our business, I will tell you that in our company, I know for a fact that we prepare, our work papers are better than 99.9 percent of the tax preparers out there, and even 99.9 percent .9 of the CPA firms, and and the reason I know this is because I know that you know we kind of learned, we kind of grew up in the big four accounting firms, and they're like sticklers for work papers, and so because their clients have you know a lot of money there, and you, you want to be really careful, and they're willing to pay for it. Well, we decided when actually when I formed Provision 25 years ago. The goal was was to provide the level of service of a big four, but with the the benefits of a very small firm to the entrepreneur. Okay, so the way we do that is we prepare really good work papers. Does that mean we spend more time on the tax return? Yes. Does that mean that our in uh, that 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 us doing a tax return is more expensive than your typical preparer? The answer is yes. We are more expensive um, than the typical typical preparer. So if what you want is the least expensive tax return um, preparation possible, please do not call our office because <laughs> it's not going to happen. If you want the best tax return for a good rate, 
that's us, okay? If you, if you want the best tax result, meaning that you're going to get the best, you know, the lowest taxes, the least chance of an audit, you know, we're great for that. But, you know, we, you know, we can only, we charge, you know, we, we can only charge for our services, right? So we are going to charge for our services, and we only hire the best and the brightest. So we actually hire most of our people out of the big four accounting firms. Well, you know they're not, you know, they're, they're getting paid a decent salary at the big four. We're going to pay them the same. We just have lower overhead and other things. So we're a lot less than the big four, but we're going to provide the same quality of service or better than the big four. That, that's always our goal. And that means we're not for everybody, okay? And we recognize that. But just be clear with your tax preparer where they are on how much time do they spend learning the tax law, how much time do they spend preparing for an audit when they prepare the tax return. Uh, you know, I would just suggest that make sure that they're, they're on the same wavelength as you are, okay? So if, if you say, if you're thinking, well, you know, I don't care about an audit. <clears throat> I don't care about, you know, how, what, what kind of work papers there are, anything else like that. Then that's fine. Then you should go get your tax return prepared for, you know, four or five hundred dollars. All right. But if you care about those things, all right, you know, then, then you want a better tax preparer. But it, it's really a matter of where are you and make sure that, you, that what you want matches what your tax preparer delivers. And in the end, um, just assume that you're going to be audited because while you ha actually have a very low risk of being audited, probably um, typical person less than 1% chance. When there is an audit, it can be very, very expensive um, to handle that audit and, and you can, and, it, and it's just very emotional. So again, I would just suggest um, if you possibly can, find a tax preparer that will prepare a tax return that is very defensible in an audit and rely on that tax professional to handle the audit for you so that you're not actually talking to the IRS. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, you really you know, you hit the nail on the head. You get what you pay for, but having a fiduciary relationship with provision, I think, uh, will serve as good stewards for anyone who's having uh, needs to have their tax prepared. Um, Tom, if you would please share with us where can we get a copy of Tax Free Wealth? Well, it is available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble. One of the greatest one one of the things I love to do when I go to New York is I always stop at the Barnes and Noble on Fifth Avenue to make sure they've got a copy of my book and they always do. It's awesome. I've actually bought it twice when I was there because I needed a copy to give to somebody. So in fact the last time I was there in um, January I was actually doing a segment on Fox and Friends and uh, on, on the Trump tax plan and they wanted an extra copy of the book and I'm going alright I'll just go to Barnes and Noble and get a copy of it and I did. And, uh, and, and the, the uh, cashier, she looks, at, she looks at me, she goes, oh, you're the author. I said, I am. She goes, that's awesome. So, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to know that your, your book's available at Barnes & Noble on Fifth Avenue. I, I get kind of a kick out of that. Um, so, you know, most, uh, you know, any major bookstore is going to have it. Amazon has it. It's on um, Audible. Um, I read it myself. So um, it is on, on Audible. And you can also get it on iBooks. All right. Now, for listeners that want to contact ProVision, please give us the website and contact information. So um, you can go to TaxFreeWealthAdvisor.com. That's actually the easiest way to go because TaxFreeWealthAdvisor.com is really easy to remember. So I'd go to TaxFreeWealthAdvisor.com. You can go to ProVisionWealth.com. That you know, the, it'll give you different information. But um, the easy one is TaxFreeWealthAdvisor.com. You can also call our office. Uh, it's uh, um, four eight zero. 467 4400 it's 4804674400 and uh, we you know we're happy to talk to anybody um, you, you know even if all you, all you just want to do is is have a chat we're happy to talk to you and also to uh, subscribe just simply place your email in there yeah absolutely if you, if you go you know what I'd like to subscribe uh, as as you mentioned Maurice uh, we, we have a weekly report and it's not as you know it's not, there's no sales in it Okay, this is pure information, 52 weeks a year, and uh, you, can, you can subscribe to it on taxfreewealthadvisor.com. Just go in and, uh, so, and you can subscribe. You can get a free consultation. You actually get a free copy of the book. If you, if you want to find a good tax advisor, taxfreewealthadvisor.com, go, go there and sign up for the free weekly report. We'll automatically get you a download of the chapter in the book on how to find a good tax advisor. And last but not least, please visit our website, www.provenandprobable.com, 
Through Miles Franklin Precious Metals Investments, we offer gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, precious metals, IRAs, offshore storage, and safe deposit boxes, which are fully insured and secured by Brinks. The website, again, is www.provenandprobable.com. Tom Wheelwright, the renowned author and founder and CEO of ProVision. Thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Thank you, Maurice. All the best, sir. Thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Remember to like and subscribe for more conversations with the most respected names in the natural resource space. Check out our website at www.provenandprobable.com. The information presented on Proven and Probable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.